0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Week in Horror, November 3rd through November 9th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm JL. I'm Eugene. I'm Alex. Before we jump into this, um, just recently the remake of The Grudge just got a new trailer. Or let's say the first trailer, just released a little bit ago, and I just... I, I I watched it. I wanted to get your guys' take on it.
1: So I just watched it because I just found out about it. You know, merely like right before doing it. Um, I kind of have some mixed reactions to it because part of me is like some of the effects are cool. Obviously, it's going to have a lot of jump scares. I really like John Cho. Uh, I think he's really charismatic on the screen on it. Um, I am. I am a little weary just a little weary about the direction they're going to go with the story. I
0: you can know. understand that. Um, from what I understand uh, and what I've heard about the upcoming film is that it takes place in the current, it kind of in the concurrent timeline as the original one is the 2004 one with Sarah Michelle Gellar um, and also okay. kind of serves as a reimagining uh, of the American series. Uh, so, it's difficult to say what they're going to do with it, but I have to admit, I kind of trust the minds behind it because you've got Sam Raimi, you've got um, Robert Tappert, okay, and uh, Takashige Ichise, who uh, is the mind behind the original. So, you've got some serious pedigree going behind this, not to mention the director they chose was Nicholas Pesh, and his uh, 2016, The Eyes of My Mother... Was a super super creepy audition style, you know, twisted, fucked up little film. So we got some some heavy pedigree behind it,
1: and that's the thing is, I trust them like that. That is the one thing. Like I'm, I'm, it, it, I'm curious because it's the kind of a different genre that they're taking on, kind of going back to the J horror. Um, But I do trust them; they have not steered me wrong yet. So definitely gonna go see it.
2: Oh, absolutely. So like, like Eugene here, I just watched it and I I thought, I thought it was super, super creepy. The, um, the way that they play with the sound, I don't know if you noticed that Eugene, we just watched it and Jared, but like the music and the way that they use like a violin creaking to like. There was a spot, I can't even remember what happened in it, but something happened where a violin made a noise and the, the sound alone was, like, super creepy. But uh, it, it looks like they, they're playing off, like, the actual true sense of fear and uh, trying to bring back that style of movie because, like, it kind of fell off. You got into spoofy stuff and the horror films have just been kind of going in a different direction. But back to that, like, pure sense of fear that I got from that 2004 version... I think they're gonna pull that in into the I think it's gonna be really good.
0: Now, I have to admit I kinda I kinda dug a lot of the imagery and the energy feels pretty good, feels pretty true to you, especially that opening sequence with John Cho.
2: Yeah.
0: Um I thought was, was really, really solid. I'm not so much a fan that uh, they're reusing I saw the re they reusing the, the shower scene where the hand comes out of the back of the hair.
2: You didn't like that?
0: Well, I it, it was done in the first one. It was done in the 2004 one and I'm never I'm never a huge fan of reusing stuff, even if it's that was 2004. This is yeah, this is 15 years later. I'm not a huge fan of them reusing stuff even at this point just because it looked cool or got a or got a shock so long ago because it's just re- it's it's not original. Um they didn't come up with it first. Uh, that was that was someone else's ID entirely. You know, and I just it's just kind of reusing it at this point. And I think they could have done something different. Um, I, I just, the, the complete reuse of that shot. And the only thing they changed was, instead of Sarah Michelle Gellar, obviously it's John Cho who's in the shower. So it was like, oh yeah, I was kind of like, oh, uh, well. Because the minute the show, the show the, oh, he's taking a shower and he's washing his hair. Oh, it's you automatically know it's going to be the exact same thing. Yeah, and but it see happened.
2: that plays yeah, off like I I just got over being able to take a shower without thinking about that scene in the movie. <laughs> now this is like refreshing the entire. Uh, seriously, I saw the I saw the trailer and I was like, oh, oh no, oh no, because I completely forgot about the demon that was gonna you know reach through my skull.
0: Okay, I'll give you this. I don't know what's going to happen after that moment because in you know in the Sarah Michelle Gellar one she, she feels it. the hand she spins around and it, it's just scary it's like oh my god what was that and then nothing happens the rest in that shower scene then we they, we cut to the next to the next moment so there could be something that comes after that because obviously hold hands,
2: embrace each other. obviously
0: in this one the <laughs> in the trailer it. that the hand come, came out more aggressively so right. it could lead to a more aggressive or creepy confrontation we don't know so there definitely could be more after it um i just i saw it and i was kind of like oh bummer that they decided to go with that again It kind of took it away but uh it's i mean with the cast it's got andrea riceboro damian Bashir. i'm a big fan of him uh john cho of course uh betty gilpin jackie weaver but i'm loving the fact that they got lynn shay in this and lynn shay is a is a character actress been in a ton of stuff but she really kind of has recently made a name for herself in the conjuring series.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Or uh, uh, oh, and, uh, yeah. well the makers, no, I'm sorry uh, no, the same director the same filmmakers but it was uh, in the Insid- the insidious films. So she she's she was one of the psychics so the psychic researchers in the insidious films and so she's been kind of running around in the Blumhouse insidious conjuring universe. You know, with the you know how they're linking it all with the crooked man and the nun and uh, insidious and all that stuff, and so she's really made a name for herself as guess. Like, she's been a solid actress as long as I've seen her. Um, I think she's fantastic, and now she—they bringing her in this brings that an extra level of pedigree because she can go from like nice and sweet and we all love her to death to just stark raving freaking mad in a, you know uh, on the turn of a dime. So. I'm look, I'm kind of I'm kind of looking forward to it. I'm I would say I'm 70/30. 70, 70/30 30, 70, 30 on the uh, the upcoming remake.
1: The one thing that really that really bothers me about it and even just just being the filmmaker I am is the release date. January is typically a bad month for releases because you'll have like the big Christmas films and you have like the big summer films and then usually January is kind of like a Okay, well, we're going to kind of kind of get rid of stuff that's on the shelf. You know, and there obviously there's always exceptions. and you, you'll you'll have occasionally a good movie that come out in January. But January always wearies me. always pay attention to release.
0: Yeah, it. definitely. Not to mention there's also like six production companies behind this because they have got Scream Gems who's like the biggest of them all. Um Scream Gems, you know, they were behind the Resident Evil series and several other big names, but they've also got Stage 6, they've got Ghost House, they've got Good Universe and Vertigo we're all behind this and when you have six production companies in that's six groups of producers all sticking their fingers in the pot and sometimes it goes well sometimes it does not but that also kind of concerns me even with Sam Raimi behind it because Sam Raimi is known for not really dealing with producers well as evidenced by like Spider-Man 3 and some other works that he's done is just and you know, the what happened with uh, Ash versus Evil Dead it was difficulties with stars um, that led to the the premature cancellation of that series. So, because the ratings were solid, but it was just production difficulties with stars itself, and so and I think they 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 were wanting to pull money from Ash to put it towards American Gods was the problem.
1: Oh, and all the yeah. problems in American
0: Gods caused problems across the board for everybody else, and unfortunately, Sam Raimi just doesn't brook with that shit. And I respect him for it. I really do. Because it's his baby. It's it's his IP. That's the thing that he started his career with back in the 70s. <clears throat> and so I got to give it to him. So unfortunately, with so many fingers in the pot, I fear it may have a negative effect. But we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, I'm mean i going to see oh, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely going to be there.
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Alex <laughs> will not be there. He will be cowering in his bed. Hey, shut up. I'll sticks. be there. Staring at staring at the closet.
2: I want to feel that way because I'm twisted and dark, and it makes me feel at home.
1: We can all go see it, and then we can all like stay up and have an all nighter because none of us <laughs> want to go to uh. Well, that'll be that'll be
0: cool. Grudge, uh, the Grudge remake, directed by uh, directed by Nicholas Pesh and. Produced by Sam Raimi and Robert Tapper, That will be releasing January 3rd, January 3rd, 2020. So, just after the holidays. All right. So, let's get this started. Eugene, what do you got for us today?
1: Okay. So, we got a very, very iconic film coming up. Uh, It's directed by Brian De Palma, who has a long pedigree of successful movies. Uh, It was actually written by Lawrence Cohan and based off of a Stephen King book. That came out in 1974, and doing some research, I found out that this movie is actually 46 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years of 100 Thrills. So it's definitely a big one. And that is the movie (laughs) Carrie, the original 1976, released November 3rd, right, and starring Sissy Spacek, William Katt. And a very young and kind of assholeish. Oh, I remember
0: he was. I remember he was such a dick in that film. I'm so glad. Oh, spoiler alert! I'm so glad he got hit by a car. <laughs> when the car mm. blows up, that's right. Felt that's so, right. so good. He he tried to hit her with the car, and she blew the shit up. That was fucking amazing. I was like, oh, it couldn't have happened yes. to a nicer
1: person. <laughs> <laughs> they all pretty much got what they deserve. So, you know, just giving you a quick a quick rundown of what happens, right? So you have this girl, Carrie, who's very kind of reserved. She's isolated, um, you know, doesn't fit in with school, and people pick on her. And actually, it starts off with a, a kind of a disturbing scene where she has her first period in the shower. And basically, like, all the kids make fun of her God, for that. that that it like that was like it was like brutal to watch and then on top of that because her mom is super super religious and was like no if you bleed it's based off of sin not just normal female body so she has no idea what's happening to her at that moment and then the kids are making fun of her on top of that so it's just a shocking moment for her and you know so she's dealing with a religious mother much throws her in the uh, throws her in the closet and as she's, and basically what happens is everybody in Jim gets in trouble. So they plot this huge revenge to get back at Carrie. So because they picked on her, they were given a week's worth of detention and with the threat of not being able to go to prom. So they do this whole thing They get this popular guy to ask her out. So they convince her to come and, um, as they putting together this whole thing and then throughout the movie she starts figuring out that she has this telekinetic teleconnect powers. She's able to move like the ashtray she's able to she breaks a mirror in her room. So when they actually execute this moment in prom and they throw all this pig's blood on her, then it's like fuck everybody. I got powers and she casts her revenge in one of the most epic scenes in film history with a prom kind of thing. And basically like massacres everybody uh, except for the main John Travolta and the main girl that was picking on her, I think was Pippi Lori. And um, they try to hit her with a car. She blows up the car. She goes back. She deals with her mom. I mean, it's just, it's a great, great film to check out.
2: Yeah, that was That was an intense movie. I mean, like uh, 1976, so we were all like, when did you see it? How old were you?
1: Uh, I actually caught it on TV, and I want to say I was maybe 12 or 13 Yeah, at the pretty time. young, right? So like Yeah, like early early to
0: mid 90s. Same for like me. That. I think I caught it um I think I caught it in the early '90s, maybe. Actually, might have been the late. It maybe in may the late '80s, like '88, '89.
2: I wanted to say, I want to say that I was, I was probably around like you know the '12, '13. I can't remember if I had seen it like on VHS or if I caught it on TV, but I remember being really young and watching that movie, and then like, not really knowing what was going on, and then years later watching it again and realized that like. It had like a like it had a lot to do with like real life problems, but then they threw this like this twist in there, and it was that she had these powers, which was really cool, and that was like the first time that I'd really seen a film that kind of had that that concept of the telekinetic like telekinetic powers where I could like really like kind of click with the movie. So I watched this movie, and uh, it was like it was one of a one of a kind. It, it was it was scary in a way that. Like when we when we watched it, how old we were, it kind of affected us. At least me, you know, being in high school and um, or going into high school, or I guess middle school, and just kind of being on there the
0: there's that seriously. There was that seriously freaky concept. It was um because I because Eugene, I believe her mother, her mother is like a like hardcore. She is... We're talking like Westboro next level yeah. fundamentalist. <laughs>
1: You know, oh yeah, she is like, like sin, sin. You are sin, and is basically beating her with the Bible and she's her. She's like
0: old, like like fire and brimstone, nothing but the Old Testament, hardcore. And and I remember uh, Carrie Sissy Spacek played that. So oh, she, God, she was so amazing in that role. She's and
2: so good she's, at playing the victim. She's,
0: she's virtually yes. this like completely and totally uneducated. She's not aware of anything. Her mother doesn't keep her, you know, doesn't teach her anything. And she's not aware of anything that's happening. It's, of course, she's uh, um, she's pubescent and barely, you know, barely able to cope with anything coming at her in life. Which is why the the period scene, uh, the menstrual scene in the shower was so shocking because she has no idea what's happening to her. And got Little- this. Oh, and God, Piper Laurie was so fucking insane in that role as her mom
2: oh my god it was yeah, exi- yes. Screaming like you said drug her into a closet i remember that scene too with all the knives when she finally
0: snapped oh yeah she crucifies her ass
2: <laughs> yeah dude sticks her to the
1: wall well she kept saying like i should have killed you As like i should have killed you at birth yeah. and all this other yeah. kind of stuff, and I'm being punished because... God, could it, you imagine just like...
2: being so upset because you just found out that, like, your whole life was, like, a lie, and you've been stuffed into a corner at school, at home, screamed at your whole life, and all of a sudden you're like, ha, guess what? I've got fucking telekinetic powers, so run. Well,
0: that, that was one thing that I thought was amazing in the film is Sissy SpaceX transformation from... She begins the movie as this... This homely girl, no makeup, no hair done, like nothing whatsoever, with with shoddy clothes. Uh, mother doesn't give her anything, and through the transformation, as she's invited to the prom, and her life—it's all of a sudden it seems like her life is coming together. And then she this this swan appearance at the prom in her prom dress with the crown, and I mean just the. Only, I believe only Sissy Spacek could really pull something like that off. It was, I mean, just absolutely brilliant the way De Palma depicted He captured the essence of the book. It's one of the, in my opinion, one of the few book-to-movie adaptations that were done well. And the fact that, you know, this, book, that this movie, Carrie, came out two years after the book was published and considered King's probably one of his greatest novels ever written, was his very first one that was published, and the fact that they landed to Palma, and Sissy Spacek, I mean, when they when they got a hold of the rights to this this book, they knew they had something really, really special, and so I think it managed to do what very few book-to-movie adaptations do, because with books being so complex, and points in the book Basically covering such a wide spectrum that you can't cover that much information in a movie. You wind up with a movie that's like five hours long trying to touch on every single detail. So you end up having to cut stuff. Everybody knows that you got to lose stuff for the movie adaptation. And that generally takes the feel of the book away if the book is relatively complex. and But in this particular one, there were simple beats, simple notes... Very, very deep character development. And I think that, you know, this is one of those rare ones where De Palma was able to take these very, very simple notes, these extremely deep characters, these very simple notes abused girl, monstrous mother, difficulties in high school. We all relate to that. I related to that looking back when I was in high school and seeing kind of ourselves in that. And then, of the course, the joy of, I would say, indulging in Carrie's revenge at the end. So,
1: and you you bring up a really good point because a lot of a lot of the older horror movies, like you look at Frankenstein and all of like the Universal monsters and all this other kind of stuff, those are those are films made from books with the author long dead. I mean, you talk about Frankenstein was like oh yeah, it was, Mar- yeah, it was Mary 1930s, Shelley, like
0: yeah, like late nineteenth century.
1: Yeah, stuff like that. So a lot of so a lot of times these authors are already dead, and this is one of the first films that you the book comes out, they immediately want to make a movie, and then right off the bat can help kickstart the film, kickstart Stephen King's career, you know, and this start kind of just paving way for like you know the Harry Potter movies and some of these others where you can start getting these book to movie adaptations quicker, and sometimes we actually have the author being a part of the filmmaking process kind of thing. So <laughs>
0: well,
1: I, I absolutely agree. Um, and, and so uh, basically what I want to do is I want to know and feel free to comment below what are some of your favorite book-to-movie adaptations? I know there's a lot of them out there. Uh, Some of them work really well. There are some really, really bad ones. So feel free to comment on maybe ones that you felt like missed the mark uh, or really bad and maybe what could have made them better. But, yeah, definitely let us know what are some of your favorite book adaptations.
0: I can tell you one of my favorites is and it's another Stephen King uh, novella was Christine, was John Carpenter's Christine. <laughs> I thought that... That adaptation, that adaptation <laughs> was on fucking point, and I that is one of my favorite all time horror films. It's a it's that I would say a, a close tie is uh, was another John Carpenter film is The Thing, which is based on you know the book uh, Who Goes There, uh, or uh, I think it was it was based oh, it was based on who yeah it was Who Goes There, the short the short story. Um, and I thought which I it's it's it, it in itself was kind of based on ten little Indians. But uh the thing is one of the, is one of my faves because that was a book uh kind of adaptation. But uh freaking Christine, holy shit, I love that car, I love that story, the music in it and the translation story and it was great because there was stuff in the story we didn't need, so they cut that and it made the it made the movie even better. Because it was like, you know what, we don't need this exposition, we don't need this extra detail. It's we just need car is possessed or alive and it's evil as shit and it's gonna run around and, and that delivered some of the best stuff i've ever seen i love fucking love that movie
1: and see it makes me wonder with about stephen king maybe that's one of the reasons why he's become so popular and become so prolific in the writing scenes because of so much of his work can and has been successfully adapted to movies you know, with Carrie and Christine and Shawshank Redemption and these other films, that they're able to translate well. Obviously, not all of his stuff. I'm talking about Dark Tower, not all of his stuff translates well. <laughs> the uh um, oh, wow, Sorry. A lot of, yeah, just, wow. Yeah. That. Shots fired. Okay. there were there, were some, I'll call, I'll call there them, was I'll some there was some bad
0: them. ones. Sometimes they come back. There's some. Yeah,
2: Something sometimes they should, but you know, <laughs> sometimes they should just stay. Away.
1: I think that's I think it's really helped
2: them. His yeah, his movies have always been really uh, most of them. Like the Mist, that was one that was like almost like word for word dialogue wise.
0: Oh yeah, it was brilliant. Fuck you, Frank Darabont. <laughs> God damn.
2: <laughs> oh, it was great. I mean, like it just from like beginning to end because I loved the book and I was like, yes, thank God, and, like a book that I can just freaking knock out in, like two days. And then as soon as I finished the book, I, like, turned the TV on. And I'm not even kidding you. Like, uh, the like one of the first movie trailers popped up on the TV. I was like, no way. And so I went and uh. saw it as soon as it came out. That was, that was the only other movie that I've seen by myself. Uh, and, like, I watched it, and I was so happy. I was smiling the whole time because it was, like, word for word. It was, like like, scene for scene. It was perfect. It's exactly how I imagined it.
0: Yeah, so good. I'm just sorry I didn't have a bullet for myself at the end of that damn movie. <laughs> but 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 reality, I, I did love the mist. I thought it was fantastic up until the last five minutes. I, unlike Stephen King, apparently King loved that ending and loved what Darabont did with it. I was not a fan of that. That just ugh, God, all <laughs> of that, all of that just awesomeness. It was like it was like watching Ninth Gate all over again. It just, it's, uh, <laughs> eh. Anywho, Alex, what do we got next?
2: All right, moving on from that sad, sad situation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that dark uh, turn.
2: Let's go. Let's go all the way back to November fifth, nineteen forty-three, with Son of Dracula. Now. It, <laughs> So I haven't seen this movie since I was a kid uh, on Halloween one year, but I still remember it. I still remember Frank and Catherine, uh, which was who Robert Page and Luis Albrighton.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, Albrighton, yeah,
2: Albrighton? Mm-hmm. Albrighton? yeah. yeah. Probably butchering that, but uh, uh, who was uh, who's Dracula in that movie? It Was uh. Can't remember his freaking name, uh, Cheney something, Lon Cheney. That's what it was, Lon Cheney. Yeah, that, yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah,
2: played his Count Alucard, which is Dracula okay.
0: You, we can't fault him for that. I mean, <laughs> it was
2: forty-three. Come on, man. Nobody.
1: If anybody wants to know, if anybody wants to know. That's just Dracula it's just backwards. Just Dracula backwards, Count and nobody backwards. like
2: put two and two together. Like when he he goes to Budapest and people write his name down a whole bunch and they never like look at it and be like, wait a second. But, uh, no, this, I <laughs> being, being as old as it is, uh, having, having, uh, Robert Page in there, especially he was, he was pretty cool. in That movie I like. I think he was my favorite character in that movie. Um, it was a good movie. H- have you seen it?
0: Oh, it's been a long time. Um, since i picked up on it, but the, uh, if I remember correctly, that was the second in the, what was the, I think it was the Universal uh, Dracula trilogy, because it was yeah, Dracula yeah. with, you know, the classic with Bela Lugosi, mm-hmm. and then you had Son of Dracula with, uh, with Lon, and then um, I, I can't remember the last time I saw it, I think I only saw it once, but then you had Daughter of Dracula, which was the third one in that, and that was all a part of um, Universal's idea to have this, giant shared universe of all of their monsters of dracula of phantom of the opera frankenstein wolfman uh, the invisible man the mummy and the creatures in the black lagoon and all of these that they each had their own storylines but um they were actually all a part of a shared universe which is why we then had like wolfman meets the mummy and we had dracula meets frankenstein and you know, we had characters that were crossing you know, all, you know, obviously different actors across the board. Um, but one of the best, you know, but you pretty much had your staples. You had Bela Lugosi, you had Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, were pretty much your standards, and uh, Boris Karloff, you know, were pretty much your standards across the board. And yeah, you know, they showed up in so many of those, either in small or in you know the title roles. But that, but did you know that that was the first time in Hollywood history? That a production company or a production studio had attempted to create a shared universe, uh, you know, ever is like where all of their films are linked in some way into the same. Which is why it's now considered the Universal Monsters, uh, Universal Classic Monsters, because that was their that was their MCU of the uh, the the twenties to the fifties.
2: Okay, you say you know? MCU, but the first thing that pops in my head when you say that is Scooby Doo. <laughs> <laughs> do you think no this is this is an honest to god question do, do you think scooby-doo would exist if this this genre of the monster universe never became a thing
1: uh well that's a really good question
0: well if i remember if i if, if i'm remembering if memory serves uh scooby-doo was produced by hanna-barbera Okay, mm-hmm. and I think Hannah Barbera is a. Is that a subsidy of Universal? Of Universal, or is that a. Uh,
1: I want to say it is.
2: <laughs> I have Wait, no, no, no idea, so, but no, I thought for uh, sure you were going to say something like the CEO of Universal's daughter's boyfriend was actually the best friend of the writer of Scooby Doo.
1: six degrees of separation
0: I was saying I I gotta I gotta see but if if, I think because obviously we had all the Scooby-Doo cartoons and we had I would say appearances kind of of the of the universal monsters Um, they were at
2: least you know replicated Uh, so
1: Hanna-Barbera is owned by Warner Brothers
0: that was that was a that was a Warner Brothers uh yeah. Okay. So, and I think it's a borrowing because at that point, when those were coming out, those were, and that was animated for them. And at this point, you already had Universal did its Universal Monsters. Then you had these, but because these characters are based upon IPs that are over, they're over a century old. You know, Dracula and Frankens. you know, the, you know, the, you know, the Bram Stoker's Dracula and the modern day Prometheus. And uh, the Invisible Man, the, the writings of H.G. Wells, and uh, with stuff like this uh, being so far out of IP, it's kind of free, the free domain. So I think Universal jumped on it and made the movies, but then you had Hammer Horror; they picked up on it, you know, in the in the forties, the fifties, the sixties, and the seventies, and so on. And I think everybody just touched on them. Is what it was. It's like you... Because we can take these great characters... And we can continue to reimagine them... Over and over and over again. So... But would we have... Without these... Without these classic monsters... Would we have Scooby-Doo? I don't think Scooby-Doo would be as good.
2: You think about it though... I
1: don't think Scooby-Doo would be as... Yeah.
2: Because they cover all of those monsters... Multiple different ways... Multiple different times... They kind of use like... Every generation of... Those universal monsters and i guess the reason i bring that question up is also because like it, if you think about it everybody has their universal monster like my my dracula would be i guess going from like dracula 2000 forward um but i've also seen like bram Stoker, uh and then like my daughter has something different they've got like twilight vampires you know and then you know it's just everybody's got their universal monster, and everybody has used them as like these, I guess, uh, common or uh, go to
1: something that they kind yeah, of yeah go to
2: monster like yeah. on Halloween. I guess is is what I'm talking about too. I don't know. It's just there's so many different types. It, it would just what what if they never no, became what, a thing? Like what would what would our lives be like without those those go tos like those.
0: Well, that, I think that that goes back to the concepts of of the of the urban legend. Over sorry, not really urban legend, but but folk tales, but folk tales and myths that you know the stuff that came out of Eastern Europe and tales of the tales that have been with you know human civilization civilization for hundreds of years. Um, you know, going back, you you got you know vampires out of out of uh, you know Romania and Bulgaria and Transylvania and Wallachia, um, tales of mad scientists and, and and you know and doctors playing God and stuff like that, inspiring the works of Mary Shelley, and then various other you know werewolf werewolves. I mean, God, werewolf legend is is almost ubiquitous across the globe. So is the vampire myth, and I think universal capitalized. Because no one else was really doing this, uh, people would adapt. Um, I, th- I think one of the earliest silent films was an adaptation of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and people were were doing adaptations of stories, but they weren't capitalizing on these folk tales, these folk legends, and you know legends from the old country. And so you had these kind of oral oral traditions that were passed down over the centuries. And I think Universal just capitalized on them because it's those kind of legends that you talk about or that people talk about or have in their families where they were this, you know, my cousins, you know, whatever knows something. And it was just kind of these whispered about tales. And then I think Universal just, just capitalized, said, you know what? We can make movies based off these off these characters. You know, we have the movie, we've we've done other things that were scary, but let's start you know, let's capitalize on this untapped market. So If Universal hadn't done it, someone else probably would have because those legends were always there for the taking and for the adaptation. Um, I think we got lucky with Universal doing it because they did it so well and they had such a crop Mm -hmm. of talented actors who loved what they were doing to bring this stuff across, to bring this to the screen. Um, But if it wasn't them, it'd be somebody else. So so
1: someone would have jumped on that. And, And the fact that they keep coming up constantly so you, you you already had those movies then you get the hammer horror movies then you got them in scooby-doo you got other cartoons based off of them so they've kind of gotten so ingrained in our culture and our mythos they're just they're they're a part of us oh
0: yeah i think they always will be that's what just makes them so that's what makes them so undying you know, for lack of a better term so <laughs> but if i remember correctly They'll- um in son of dracula uh, that one was a unique one because obviously these films, these supernatural horror films, give an opportunity for uh, for directors and for production companies to really push the envelope as far as effects go. But uh,
1: there was something about Son of Dracula that set it apart. Um, yes, yes. So this is actually the first first time, and it's crazy to think about it because it's so common to us whenever we think about Dracula today, but there had to be a first. This is the first time we actually see Dracula transform into a bat on camera. Oh, that must have been wild in 43. Of thing. <laughs> and and at the, the thing is at the time, so we have a couple of movies that show actually a couple of mild transformations, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is still one of the best transformations uh, if you ever get a chance to go and watch that the way they did it. But you didn't really see that many transformations. So that was astonishing at the time. And the person who actually came with the transformation, his name is John P. Fulton. And he's responsible for the Invisible Man, and in that series, uh, he ended up just a couple other things. He he won an award for the Ten Commandments. So this is a guy who has been ingrained in horror, who's done special effects, who came up with the animation and stuff like that for, it, and has lived on.
0: I mean, I'm I'm, I'm now like remembering the original, the first Invisible Man. And yeah, that scene when he's when he when he's laughing like a maniac and he's un, like unwrapping his head and shit and everyone's like, oh my god, oh my, oh that was so... <laughs> just to, th- to think, I how okay okay, uh, clue me in, Eugene, because even as a, even as a filmmaker myself, I I love practical effects like that. That that what kind of camera trickery is that?
1: Oh that is actually so they actually used a couple of techniques at the time you would actually use this almost like a cartoonish animation style and they would actually overlay that on top of the film and the thing is is that the fact that it was so seamless because a lot of times when you have like these cuts on these transformations it's almost like a jump cut kind of thing and for those who don't know um, a jump cut is where you have the exact same shot, but they put a cut, so it looks like a character jumps, or the the entire frame kind of jumps a little bit. Kind of, you'll see it in YouTube all the time. Uh, so that's a jump cut. But the way they did it was that since they would overlay it on the top of it, you would avoid the jump cut, so it looks it looks so much professional, so much lifelike. on top
0: Oh, of that it. is so wild! I just remember just like you know, black and white film, and the the actor is obviously there. OK, and being able to pull out the deal that, that the whole he's in it's in 3D like he's he's unwrapping his own head and he's not there <laughs> and just being <laughs> astounded at, at being astounded by that was it was very, very impressive. So uh, God, they did, some, they did some fantastic work back then. And of course, everything we have today just sits on the shoulders of everything that Universal did. <laughs>
1: It really does because a lot of times what they would do is actually – because they knew it was going to be in black and white, they would play with camera settings and the colors. So the cameras would actually – the camera and film stock, you would actually adjust it to different colors. And so you can make something appear in and out of frame not by, say, raising – the like making it bright or darker again. But you can have your camera set and then increase the amount of blue light you would actually light your scene. So it would wash out another color, and that's how they can make things appear and disappear.
0: That's one of the cool things about black and white. What something I miss is because with black and white, um, black is black, and there's and shadows. Uh, you can you can be lost in them, and just the starkness of shadows. Instead of like now with color, you have gradients um, that you can kind of see in. But with black and white, shadows were shadows, and light was light, and it was very expressive of mood. And obviously, you know, played very, very well, and being able to pull off some trick photography, so really impressive, really, really cool stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So,
0: I want to put it up to the audience. Anybody who's listening, of all the Universal monsters that are out there, we named off a bunch of them earlier. What is your favorite Universal monster? And what is your favorite universal monster storyline? Like, did you dig Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein or the Dracula series or the Wolfman series or the, you know, my favorite, my absolute favorite, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. I love that work. I loved all the underwater work they did with that. I can't even imagine what it was like being in that suit at that time. It is intense, but what's your favorite universal monster storyline? Let us know in the comments. So, this next one on our list And one of my personal favorites (laughs) November 9th, 1984 Which was a big night Which was a big night in horror But November 9th, 1984 A little gem called A Nightmare on Elm Street released
2: And pretty much
0: Set the bar At this point Now, directed by Wes Craven We all know and love And Oh I love this movie so much but uh, written and directed by Wes Craven, and starring a host of young stars at the time. We got Heather Langenkamp, uh, John Saxon was in it, uh, Amanda Weiss, Robert Englund, legendary Robert Englund, Freddy Krueger, and a very young Johnny Depp in his very first movie. So He's Johnny like 12, Depp,
2: twelve, is- right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was so young. He was so baby faced. In that, and arguably, I have to say, other than Robert Englund, who just went to who just went for broke with his with the way he depicted the the uh, Freddy Krueger, was arguably probably the best actor in that. It was it was impressive. He, I mean, I was I, I he was nuanced. He was natural. He was just there, and then he got smoked most violently, which was really fun to watch. And one oh, of my dude. favorite scenes. <laughs> Jesus. You to say that's
2: one of your favorite kills. That's one of my most memorable kills in horror movies for sure.
0: So, but uh, for anybody who's not seen it, which I doubt, but we'll give a quick run, a quick rundown of it is: um, the children, the the teenagers of Elm Street are suffering nightmares, and within them is this horribly burned, knife handed killer who's stalking them in their dreams and manages to kill some of them. And as the, ch- as the kids, as the teenagers, attempt to figure out who this guy is and why he's stalking them in their dreams and why they can't seem to escape him, they discover, this, the, they discover that the whole thing is a revenge plot for what their parents did to this guy when he was still alive, before he became the monster chasing them through their dreamscapes. And it, it culminates in one of the best throwdowns between a final girl and a villain that I still think it even beats out Alice and Jason or Alice and Jason's mother in the original in the first Friday the 13th um, uh, friggin Nancy and Freddie going to town that was is one of my favorite climaxes in any horror film such a fantastic uh, movie whatsoever and so beautiful and wonderful to watch mm-hmm. you know so
1: many cool things to see in it Yeah, because when you actually start dealing with these dreamscapes, right, because Freddy Cougar's attacking the dreams, they had to come up with a lot of these practical effects to make it work because you couldn't just have, you know, Jason, just your standard, okay, we'll kill with a machete or chainsaw or something like that. You had to have some, like, freaky visuals and some things that, like, people haven't seen before, especially because... You know, the slasher is already at its high point. You already have a lot of slasher movies out. So Wes Craven had to do something that sets his movie apart from all these other slasher movies. And one of them is taking place in the dream. So they actually went above and beyond on a lot of the kills and which right off the bat I'll start off with probably the most memorable kill is the Johnny Depp one where he gets sucked into the bed and all of a sudden you have all this blood starts gushing and it like holes up on the ceiling such a sweet fucking
0: scene (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's such such a brutal kill. Right, there's so there's not there's not even that much blood in the human body. But there's just <laughs> blood everywhere, like anime style, like blood everywhere. It's just spray they and just filled they have,
2: up a leaf blower with blood and just switched on.
1: <laughs> and just poured it on there. But but if if you haven't if you haven't seen the scene, definitely go check it out. And but the way they were able to do that is they actually built a replica of his room. Right, just small, scaled down a little bit and then turned it upside down and poured blood into it so it would go on the ceiling. But if you know if you pay attention closely, they only had one take because they knew it was gonna go blood everywhere. They didn't quite tilt it exactly all the way, so the blood kinda runs to one side, <laughs> if you pay attention to it. But it works because it just as you see his blood hit the ceiling and then it slides over to the left and what looks like an unnatural angle they use the same upside down room on when they kill um when they kill tina oh yeah what which is in
2: the movie (gasps) just kidding (laughs) oh
1: no (laughs) spoiler alert (laughs) but i'll tell you i'll tell you right now her death when you want an opening death Right, that is one of the best opening deaths I've ever seen in a franchise. Oh, when they, when, they,
0: when her boyfriend is there, like and they had they framed him, so like he's right there in the corner, like he's looking up, and she's being dragged up the walls and across the ceiling and everything, and he's like, in the way they frame that so so beautifully, uh, God, Fra- Craven was a goddamn master.
1: He, he was because it's like you know you picture you know. A lot of times, when you have a lot of these kills, it's like, oh, well, they're alone, and their people are trying to rescue, but they don't get there in time. This is like he's there, and you can see how helpless he is on it. There's absolutely nothing that he can do, nothing. (laughs) And he she just killed like right in front of him. Yeah,
2: that (laughs) those poor freaking kids in Ohio, man. Just because their parents were assholes. More of the story. Well, don't be an asshole. The dude, the dude your the kids dude was will pretty pay bad. For it.
0: The dude was kind of a bad guy. I mean, yeah, I think, they were assholes. Yeah. yeah, the parents were assholes, but he kind of fucking deserved it.
2: I, I mean, I understand. Like, I, I get where they're coming from, but like, don't burn them alive. Take their head off or something. I feel like that'd be more, <laughs> more of like a sustainable way to take. Because then, you know, they won't haunt you in your children's nightmares. Poor freaking kids. Man. No, great.
1: They should. If they just shot him to begin with, it'd yeah. <laughs> all be yeah. done.
2: That's like a course, lose lose. You got to kill him, or he's gonna keep raping kids. Like I don't. What do you do? And of course, uh, if you the, if you kill him, he's itself. gonna dream rape your kid. <laughs>
0: And of course, the the franchise itself is guy. Like, how many? Oh God, there's like, there's God, like
2: nine films,
0: te, nine films,
2: nine films, a yeah. TV series, books, comics, like it just. Man, Wes Craven started just something that would go in. We're talking about it now. Our kids are going to see it. And they're going to talk about it. He created this oh, holy immortal. Shit, you just
0: series. reminded me. You just reminded me the uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Freddy's was it? Freddy's nightmares.
2: Uh. Yeah. Oh, was
0: that the, was that the TV series?
2: Uh, yeah. It sounds right. I believe so. I, I think. I remember, oh
0: my god! I I think I, I yeah I remember that watch watching that when I was young. Oh, that's so creepy. It
2: yeah it it just went on forever. Yeah, it was Freddy's nightmares, and it ran uh 1988 to 1990. So you know, <laughs> a few years after the first one came out, but yeah, they ran. They ran so long. It was insane to see, see that, and then I, I can't remember if it was a. Uh, there was something that came out later, um, that I ended up seeing about it, and I was like so blown away that something that I've been seeing my whole life had popped up. You know, fifteen years, twenty years later, it, it's still like I'm I'm still gonna watch the entire series before Halloween. Definitely,
1: I, I, it's just the fact that Freddy Cougar. They really, really gave him a lot of character instead of just being like a stone face no, killer or they trying to go for. Him.
2: Know,
1: he was yeah, almost relatable. He was funny, you laughed at him. Scary. Yeah, he was. He he was just he was a villain that stood out way beyond his okay. You know, yeah, the whole kill you in dreams part. Yeah, that's creepy. <laughs> you and fuck everything. your kids and kill but you in dreams. The character himself <laughs> and Robert England. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just gloss over that part.
2: Yeah, Robert well, England though. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, I'm not going to get into why Supernatural Mass Murder is relatable to Alex, but I will ask. He's already said um, so much. (laughs) uh, I will ask uh, any (laughs) listeners, what is your favorite entry in the series for Nightmare on Elm Street? Is is it the first one, the original one, Um, the kind of uh, homoerotic part two? Uh, Dream Warriors. Dream Warriors is my favorite. Maybe it's Freddy's dead. Uh, let us know in the comments. What's your favorite entry in the Freddy Krueger saga, Nightmare on Elm Street?
1: New Nightmare. Oh yeah, I gotta go with the first one. I do. <laughs> gotta go with the first one. But yeah, definitely let us know uh, what your favorite entry is. So we actually got a nice, we got a nice movie coming up also, right? And this movie actually came out on the exact same day as Nightmare on Elm Street. And it was out in theaters for only a week, and it was so shocking, right, and so gory and had so much bad imagery in it. They actually pulled it from the theater after only one week of showing, which is, you know, something that's pretty much unheard of. But the fact that it was pulled actually kind of started developing a cult status because a few people who saw it, you know, wanted to, hey, you have to go find this video out. You have to go check it out. And it, it is Silent Night, Deadly Night, right? Ooh. Directed by Charles Sellers, right? Written by Michael Hickley. And it stars Lillian Chauvin and Glamir McCormick. In a insane Brutal Santa Claus <laughs> <laughs> Oh,
0: I remember I remember oh, wow. seeing the uh, The VHS for this um, At Blockbuster Yes, I'm that fucking old <laughs> So
2: <laughs> Hey, hey, to be fair, I rented movies from Blockbuster too
0: But I remember saying this And it was the it was the Santa Claus arm with the axe <laughs> yeah, totally. uh, sticking out of the chimney. Yep, <laughs> and
2: you see that on was, the shelf. Like, wait a second.
0: It was like, oh, hold up! This, this, that's no, no, that's not right. My, you know, your worldview is just like ah, uh, cognitive dissonance. No, Santa's not a murderer. Oh my but God! He, Christmas but should but be sh- happy. He sure as shit is a murderer in this one. Yeah, he
2: kills. He kills everybody. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So for, yeah, so for those of you who haven't seen it, right, um, it is actually – it starts off with you have our main character slash who eventually becomes killer, Billy. And Billy witnesses the death of his parents by a robber dressed in a Santa suit. So um, the guy comes in and shoots his dad and then, like, rapes the mom and then slits her throat. And he's like hiding off in the woods with witnesses this entire thing and it like scars him permanently. Yeah, I
0: think it would um,
1: with it. <laughs> As it should. <laughs> and so it so it starts following it starts following Billy and as he gets older, he you know he starts spending time in an orphanage. And as Christmas starts coming around, all these people kept making him like deal with Santa Claus and it just scars him completely until it gets to the breaking point, right? Where he is now like in his early twenties. He's working at he's working at a toy store, and they have this whole christmas thing and they make him dress up as santa claus he's already scared to death of santa claus and hates santa claus and they're like why don't you dress up as santa claus and force people to sit in your lap (laughs) (laughs) this this, (laughs) will force you to do that this will not end well and (laughs) (laughs) so as as y'all can picture he goes in. He goes in the back room, right, and he sees his girl being attacked. And basically, it just snaps. <laughs> He's just, "You're naughty," <laughs> and he goes and strangles the guy. And she's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you killed him." He's like, "Well, you know what? I tried to save you, but you don't like how I saved you. So I'll just stab you with a box cutter in the chest."
2: Yeah, I mean that seems like a reasonable go-to. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, and then you know the manager walks in. It's like, oh well, I gotta kill him too, so <laughs> it, <laughs> kill him with a hammer. And so then he progresses. He west. he hits his breaking point. He's dressed in Santa Claus because he's not gonna change at this point, right? And so he basically starts going on a killing rampage as Santa Claus, saying, "You're naughty, oh, you're God, naughty." he? <laughs>
2: God. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, though. That's crazy that they pulled the film. It, you know, it was like, what did you say, a week?
0: Yeah, it was
1: it, Yeah, it was only theater yeah. for a week.
2: Yeah, but then there was five films. So, like, was it five? Yeah, there was five of them.
1: I, I think it was
0: five. It was like five films. I think the, like the first three are connected. Why, like the yeah, the first three, three are, they, are like the they, same
2: story, and then they go to a new... four and five are like
0: weird. Yeah. Then they change
2: it. I remember. Yeah. I remember seeing, I never saw five. I definitely saw four. There's something uh,
0: about, there's something about holidays, holidays and violence.
2: That was something that even, uh, in an interview in a documentary, um, uh, mother superior Lillian, I'm going to mess up her last name, but Chauvin, um, like even admitted that it was a mistake to like focus on Santa Claus in this movie because it's not what they like intended it to be uh in the beginning it was supposed to focus more on uh Billy's Billy's side of the story the whole Santa Claus thing like and they even changed the name from like slay ride to silent night deadly night and the whole thing they should have like they said they should have focused somewhere else with it but like there's so many parents and critics that were like because this was it was the third time that Santa Claus has been evil in, like, a public uh, film or TV show. But it was, like, the first big one, especially getting released on uh, Nightmare on Elm Street night. So, like, there was so much controversy between mixing Santa Claus, this supposed-to-be-happy, jolly man, with an axe and the just absolute bloodthirstiness to kill whoever he well, that, finds in that, his that's path. Part of what
0: was That's part of what was wild, is because... When the film released that weekend, it for that first weekend it actually outgrossed um, Nightmare on Elm Street.
2: Yeah, by so
0: yeah, by like what was it it,
2: like sixty thousand dollars or something?
0: Yeah. Now uh, Elm Street did uh, Elm Street, I believe, uh, opened in fewer theaters in a few uh, fewer theaters, but it actually outgrossed it for that weekend and for the week in the short amount of time that it was out. So it was it was like something over two point four million dollars. That it grossed that one, um, and then in after that, opening that weekend. it dropped. It literally 5%. made it budget. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. it was wild um, that it was so popular at the time, but then once the drop. But part of that controversy was when the uh, it was predominantly the advertising campaign is what pretty much kicked it in the balls, and the posters of the Santa Claus with the Santa Claus arm with the axe, and there were some TVs, there were some TV spots, some TV ads that ran and in particular one of the worst ones was um that one of the tv spots aired in between uh what was it uh, Three's Company and Little House on the Prairie oh, so wow. so children were watching this and then the the outcry from parents basically you know their kids suddenly being terrified of Santa Claus and didn't want to go near him, having seen this at you know the prime at the prime hour, and it it wound up with the with like the parent teachers association, you know, fought to have the film removed due to due to subject matter and you know the the violent image of Santa Claus and the effect it was having on children. This and it wound up with like protests, crowds of families went to you know uh, went to theaters and tried to shut he shut down uh, screenings of the movie. There was picketing, and it was nuts. And eventually, you know, so much that they they pulled it. That was the only thing. And I can't remember a time when, I think it was uh, TriStar. I think it was TriStar Pictures was the original distributor. And then they pulled everything from it. They pulled all the ads. And then eventually ended up pulling the film. And I can't remember a time that that was done in response. I mean, there was a, like, when Kevin Smith uh, came out with Dogma. There was some pretty serious controversy with that because the Catholic Church and the uh, the Chris the uh, the Catholic League got all up in arms, and that even attracted the attention of Westboro. And there were, there was picket, there was a protest of that film. Still didn't get it pulled. So maybe it was West a different, Westboro was a different
2: was fucking insane. It,
0: well, maybe it was it was a different time. Yeah. It was nineteen eighty four, and you know,
1: and. Uh, that's what I was going to say is that in the early 80s, we're still kind of like a Puritan. We don't want to see too much in movies. You know, you, you had people that were trying to get uh, Indiana Jones rated of a lost star. They're trying to give that an R rating, which came out, what, 82? Something yeah. like that. So it was a little bit more of a conservative time. Back then Because you know You release a killer Santa movie today No one's going to care They just You know They'll go sit Cool Santa Claus Oh they whatever. did They did, they back did do a then. remake I think um,
0: I think it was like two thousand. Yeah it was like Kind of a loose remake But Still this like, time It was like A Santa, Claus, a guy in a Santa suit And a mask And I think he had A fucking flamethrower
2: <laughs> Badass.
0: Yeah, it was like a Santa with a fucking flamethrower. I think. Wait, was
2: what, the what was the name of this? I wanna go watch it, it.
0: It was. I think it was Silent Night Deadly Night. I think it was an. It was like a legit straight re- uh, remake. Um, yeah, it's just called, oh, called Silent, Silent Night. Night. That was it. It was uh, December twenty twelve. And had a uh, Malcolm McDowell in it, but yeah, I think that it was it, there, it. wasn't like Santa with like a real, like a like a fake beard. Or like a, he was wearing like a a Santa suit and a Santa mask, like a plastic Santa mask, um, kind of like V like V for Vendetta style, where it, like covers his whole face and then and it had like the <laughs> eyes blacked out. And they think see he, he had a fucking flamethrower and was just torching people.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, damn. <laughs> Uh, check that out
1: so so absolutely you get a chance uh check out silent night deadly night you have the other the other um installments that are there in the series and the the question that i want to go and i want to ask is you know leave your comments below what is your favorite holiday horror film Kind of thing, and I'm actually going to drop one real quick. It's a little short film that you can find in on YouTube and a bunch of other places. But there's a little gem out there called Tree Vengeance, which is uh, it's a it's a Christmas horror Christmas movie where the trees are alive and conscious, and people are cutting them and killing them. You know, to decorate. Do ornaments and stuff like what we do today, and then the trees revolt. Oh my god! This sounds amazing. amazing. They go on this killing spree. Oh, it it is it is awesome. It is the kills are over the top. It is gory. One of the trees kills a cat and then throws their cat at the family. Right. Get
2: the fuck off me. <laughs> Climb on me, bitch.
1: <laughs> so it's like the whole thing is like 15 minutes long, but it is it is hilarious. It is shot in the 80s style. So, But yeah, go ahead, drop a comment of what's your favorite uh, holiday horror film. Yes.
2: All right, let's move. Let's stop because we're going to start talking about Thanksgiving and... <laughs> No, <laughs> bring on ginger there. dead
0: man ginger dead
1: man
2: <laughs> god no we'll cover that we'll cover that coming up here all right so moving moving forward 4 years here to uh actually same night november 9th 1988 child's play was released and if you could make a doll creepier they did it <laughs> And they did it yep. in the perfect the perfect era style that that, that movie was shot. That's uh um Catherine Hicks, Chris uh Sarandon, Alex Vincent, uh, and then Brad Dorf was the voice of Chucky, and then the, the murderer, the Charles Lee Ray. Uh <laughs>
0: This movie so, scared the shit out of my wife. She was like yeah, terrified. So- yeah.
2: Tom Holland directed that. He did such a good job with everything. He was he brought the screenplay too along with uh Don uh Mancini was a writer on that one. And so like there's a, for me the one scene that will always stand out and I can't I think it was I think it was from this this movie, but I've watched all of them. Uh when he's in the car. Yeah, it is. He's in the car uh Chucky's in the back seat of the car. And stabs stabs oh, through. Oh, you
1: stab into the back seat. of the seat.
2: <laughs> it, it's the reason that I check behind my seat every time I get into my car. <laughs> I'm not I'm not kidding. That's not <laughs> even a joke. And I'm not even I'm not even ashamed of that. But just because of that one scene alone in this movie, I, I always check behind the seat in my truck.
1: I'm, it you know, it was interesting because they actually they did a survey on out of like the iconic horror, all iconic horrors like you know Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, and all this other kind of stuff. Who do you have most nightmares about? And
2: Chucky was number one. It makes sense that more He's people, a yeah, more people have nightmares. He was. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. Like you never like, and I would be so pissed if I got killed by a little fucking doll. Wait,
1: come I on, be wait. so who, mad.
0: Who didn't piss themselves with that epic scene when when Hicks is character, when Andy's mom has the doll and, oh and she's, you know, she's got and she she picks up the box and the batteries fucking fall out
2: yeah and she's like okay oh, yeah.
0: like, oh holy yeah, shit and then she flips the doll around and <laughs> pops no the bad. back and Fuck. pops the back and then his head spins around <laughs> it's like okay today bitch. Dude, I I shit myself when I said that was so well timed. Oh, but that was but, like I'm
2: trying to think of a movie beforehand that dealt with evil dolls. But that was the first one where the doll was like straight up alive. You know, oh, got it, like
1: it, 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 like straight up running around. Like you got like, like Annabelle
2: time. and like all that stuff. But Annabelle doesn't like. There's not really a point where she's just kind of like walking around the kitchen.
1: Oh, you
0: had you had uh, you had the movie Dolls, which was a Creepy little weird black that comedy. Was super w. weird. Then you had Dolly Dearest, which was uh, a really, which it actually was kind of creepy, kind of scary. Um, we wouldn't have had the uh, uh, uh what came probably the the clown in Poltergeist.
2: Oh my god! Don't yeah.
0: Oh <laughs> yeah. Okay. Could you? When did we, we cover shit. that one? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man that 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 doll, that clown doll, and that fucking tree were fucking scary. That that was a scary and fucking see, movie.
2: <laughs>
1: and you know, one of the things that made Chucky work because you had you had to figure out how to do the doll the right way, and they ended up going way more practical effects. And what they actually used, they used a combination of some animatronics, animatronics. along animatronics along with a guy in a small suit
0: that's right to get to to get the walking (laughs) to get the walking correct yeah to make it more lifelike
1: yeah so because there's a couple whatever you see him like jumping off the bed or off the the table or something like that um it's typically it's a guy in a suit um and then we get the close-ups you know like when he does the exorcist head turning around thing they switch over to the animatronic side and they blend that so well when you get a creepy little doll that runs across behind you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think far more effective than, than
0: any CGI it was that uh, I don't think, because, okay the, that, that final scene after he gets chucked in the fire and he comes out and he's stalking Andy down the hallway and yeah. he's, doing that, that he's doing that slow walk oh. towards him. Oh! And he's just fucking burnt to a crisp and smoking, and he's just doing that slow stalk where he and, and he's trying to scoot away from him, and just you, you couldn't have pulled that off CGI. You needed that you, you need that, that thing there in the hallway. Just oh, that. <laughs>
2: so can I can I can I just throw that. something in there? Just a little thing that I, I read on this movie was uh, in that scene when he's getting out of the fire. If you look really closely, you can see a hand pushing the doll. Like, that's not supposed to be in the shot. (laughs) I mean, which I get, because like you said, there's so much that goes into that special effect that like they have to they have to do something. And so they tried to conceal a hand and you can see it pushing him into the the fire. (laughs) Well,
0: there's been there's been so many entries. Into into that series, and you had the first three uh, of the yeah, of the yeah. original trilogy. Um, two is actually my favorite. Um, I actually enjoyed that because I think after establishing the character, Brad Dorif got the opportunity to really kind of ramp up the range of what he oh, could yeah. do with he the doll. So it. yeah, we didn't need any backstory. We didn't need any setup like this. He was like, oh great, F- fantastic. The killer's in the doll. We know it. And now Brad Dourif can just go to town, just being himself. Just you know, you know, probably one of the most iconic voices out there. And so he's been the voice of Chucky for I think was was is it uh, five six? It was like eight, I think, eight films. It's like seven or eight films with you know Bride of Chucky and then Seed of Chucky and then Seed of Chucky Curse of, Ch- Curse of Chucky Cult of Chucky Cult of Chucky yeah. and so seven films, seven mm-hmm. films. Brad Dourif has been the voice of of Charles E. Ray, of Chucky. And, I mean, I couldn't think of another voice for him. That's why it was so controversial with such a legacy behind it. Plus, with, uh, well, well we know that the series kind of took a turn with, you know, Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky. Um, I honestly think, because it, it went more camp, and then de- it, definitely, yeah, it, a more it definitely got silly with Seed of Chucky like this, but when Curse of Chucky came out... And Cult of Chucky, it's still canonical. It's still following the same, the same canon, the same, the same uh, universe. But those ones took a real. Those ones, I think, Mancini course corrected perfectly into those. And I think Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky were fantastic. Um, and they got back to what made Chucky scary again. And so it definitely, they'll never recapture that very first film. You know the very first one, but these ones, but the new ones coming out. That's why it was so controversial when the remake was announced, um, because and Mancini had nothing to do with it and didn't want anything to do with it because he had his he, because with a uh, curse and cult, the franchise has picked up steam again, and he's got plans for it. You know, play you know plans to continue the story, the to continue the story on now with with Brad Dourif still doing the voice, and now with his daughter, with Brad Dourif's daughter Fiona now working in the series as well. So he's got plans, and he didn't want anything to do with the with the remake and felt that it would detract or take some of the steam out of what he was trying to do. But they went ahead and you know went on with the remake anyway because Anyways. he doesn't specifically own the rights to uh, the doll. He owns the rights to Charles Lee Ray, but not yeah, to the doll the, itself, exactly, which is the, why yeah. the, the remake... Focused on on weight on uh, haywire AI, um, and more and more CG, and of course, you know I can't argue with the casting of Mark Hamill as the voice, but I felt he was just trying to imitate Brad Dourif.
1: Yeah, and with Mark Hamill, for those who don't know, he has the iconic voice of the Joker for so many like the animated Batman series and the Arkham Asylum video games and he's basically he is the voice of Joker and he does quite a few other villains too he just has an iconic voice that can do that and when the best way to have Mark Hamill is you unleash him he came up with a tone that he wanted for the Joker the half laugh half creepy tone and that's why it works so well instead of okay well hey Mark Hamill you have a villain voice but we want you to exactly do Brad's you know if you want to do Brad's voice then you just hire a voice actor who can perfectly mimic Brad's voice versus Mark Hamill doing it cuz i feel like i feel like Hamill's voice kind of goes to waste in this yeah movie. yeah it was a, a missed opportunity cuz i
0: think they they played it too safe instead of letting Mark really try to to put his own spin on to to bring his own energy to it um They just went with Brad, you know, but then again, maybe because Mark's getting old, we know he's retired from the voice of the Joker because the voice of the Joker has done a lot of damage to his voice, keeping up that laugh and everything. But Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it was just, it was the safe option for Mark because trying to do something else, he didn't want it to, he probably didn't want it to come out like the Joker. You know, his most iconic voice. If he tries to go down that road, it may sound too much like that. So he may have played it safe. Uh, try just doing kind of a spin on the Brad Dourif style, you know, doing that, and it. Uh, we, uh, of course, we'll never know because I, you know, I'm not like I'm ever we're ever gonna have Mark Hamill on this show. But Why um,
2: not, he's done with Star Wars. He did this film. <laughs> he's not doing shit. He can come on the show. He's got the time.
0: <laughs> because I'd be I'd be more apt to have Brad Dourif on this motherfucker. let's get them both
2: in and just see like what the fuck's up with this
0: (laughs) just ask them
2: (laughs) yo yo let's let's hash this out right here right now and they're gonna be like what the fuck (laughs) like i hate this guy and and then this would be great so uh, let's have our people contact his people
1: let's find out what the what the listeners think (laughs) yes yes ask us so uh, let's let's see, comment below, who do you think is the better voice of Chucky? If you think it's Brad Dourif or Mark Hamill, so let us know in the comments. It's Brad Dourif.
2: Luke Skywalker. <laughs> there is a
1: correct answer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, this is a pass or fail question.
0: <laughs> so we have one special birthday this week, and I've been looking forward to this one because he is one of my favorite uh, icons in all of horror, and born on November third, nineteen forty six. I want to give a happy birthday to the one and only Tom Savini. Well, what happy, happy birthday. birthday? So this cat is so legendary. Um, a little bit about his background. Tom Savini is both a makeup a makeup and effects artist, and he's also an actor and a director. And Savini got his start in the in the industry by wor- working with George Romero. So that's literally where he where he started, you know, working in movies was with the guy who created the dead. And his his work was he pretty much honed his work through his childhood. Just kind of, you know, practicing makeup effects on himself and honing his craft and figuring out his style, then eventually practicing on his friends. Um and one thing, but it was when he went to Vietnam because uh, he did a tour in Vietnam and a lot of people have commented on Savini – the realism of Savini's work and how well he captured you know, gore and dismemberment and all kinds of just horrible – all the stuff that we came to know in the Dead series because the first Dead movie, he worked on Dawn of the Dead. Yep. Um. Yep. And so it was his experiences of Vietnam and the things that he saw because he was a combat photographer and the things that he witnessed – went to inspire the work. you know, he pretty much threw all of that into his work and it was kind of what he what he has often said is kind of what kept him sane is cause he just kept looking at what he was seeing like they were special effects. It's like it's just special effects. It's just special effects. And then he <laughs> took all that and then segued it into his career and used his efforts, you know, used the things that he saw in Vietnam and um his uh early stuff, like his early uh I think his earliest, um, his earliest influence was uh, was Lon Chaney in Man of a Thousand Faces. Is what kind of inspired him, mm-hmm. and he took that and he has had a a legendary career both as a as an effects artist and also as an actor. He's been in a ton of stuff. He was in From Dust Till Dawn. He's been in Children of the Living Dead. Uh, he was in the, the Ted Bundy movie. Uh, he worked on the Dawn of the Dead remake with uh, Tom with uh, Zach Snyder. So he's been in, he's, he's been a, pretty much connected to the to the Dead series, to Romero's Dead series for as long from pretty much the beginning. You know, worked on Grindhouse, Machete, uh, all kinds of stuff. But his his career as an effects artist, we've all seen it before. He worked on Friday the Thirteenth. He worked on the original. He worked on the the Romero's Dawn of the Dead. He worked on Eyes of a Stranger. He worked on the first Maniac film. He worked on both Creep shows. Creepshow Show and Creepshow 2. Uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter was one
1: of his big ones. Um, the dude is just a legend. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh two. Yeah. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, it's it's funny because I was sitting there looking up credits, and you know, you mentioned that he was in Dust Till Dawn. He's credited as just sex fishing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's so brilliant. I, I could I couldn't let that go. I could <laughs>
0: The dude is so cool. I saw him. He narrated a, a Friday the Thirteenth uh, documentary where they pretty much just talked about all of the movies because he was so heavily he's he's been so heavily involved in that franchise, and uh, the this his narrative was so is he's so camp and so comic, and just loves what he does. Just gets in, he gets into it so much. Just you know, fake blood and you know polystyrene body parts and all kinds of that. The dude is a blast to watch. And I think he would be so much fun to work with.
2: He loves what he does. And that's, that's just great.
0: Yeah. That's why he has a long career doing it. So if you ever want to check out some of his stuff for any of our listeners, if you want to check out some of the stuff that he's done, you can check out any of the stuff we've mentioned before, but he also, we, we talked about it in a pre, in a previous episode, tales from the dark side, the TV series. He actually directed three episodes of that and he directed the remake the 1990 remake which we mentioned of night of the living dead with Tony Todd he actually directed that as well and a, a big uh big thing uh, the theater bazaar um he directed a segment in that called wet dreams which was really freaky i don't want to spoil that i want people to see that but you can see a lot of his work throughout horror a lot of his inspiration he's one of the one of the first big ones he goes up there with Rick Baker And the likes of that. So, happy birthday to Tom Savini. Thank you so much for all the blood (laughs) you So, Happy birthday,
1: Tom. Happy birthday, Tom.
0: Well, that wraps up another episode of Week in Horror. Thank you all so much for listening. Maybe you learned something. Maybe you laughed. We do hope you did. Week in Horror is a real passion project for us here. And we really hope you enjoyed as much as we enjoy making it. If you did, please subscribe to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast hosting site. And make sure to stab that notification button as we drop new episodes every single Sunday. And we're always improving here at Week in Horror, so any questions, comments, or feedback, we would love to hear from you. And of course, if you follow us at Facebook.com slash you can get your daily splatter, which is a bit of horror history, every single day. Because what's a day without a little horror? All right, thank you again for all your support. We love you guys. I'm JL. I'm Eugene. Alex. And we will see you all next week.
1: Bye.